all fans of that music know what it's one thing. It's Voices of Experience. We're here live in the studios high atop. I guess this is Factoria, Paul. Smoky. Smoky Factoria. Factoria. I think so. Yeah, right. Can you see you it? You can't even see Seattle anymore. Uh, very smoky these days. Um, but you are listening to Voices of Experience right here on Kixie 880 AM and KKNW AM 1150. This program also airs on Sundays over at Kixie. At 11 a.m. And then, of course, wherever you get those podcasts that you know and love, this show is there. Just type in Voices of Experience. I'm Eric Karima, co-host. Normally, I do a spotlight on success. Uh, We're going to take a hiatus from that today. There's a lot of great information we want to get to that uh, Paul has produced. So, Paul, let's talk about that. Uh, You're even introducing a new segment today. Yeah. This is going to be a fun show. Yeah. We're just uh, trying to try new things. So we're going to continue on that path. and. I don't know if the audience is having fun with it, but we are. We are. So that's what's, no, the audience is important too, obviously. Oh, yeah. Let's think about that. Absolutely. Um, Want to uh, just mention something today on a downer note or something, but uh, just wanted to mention because I had a relationship with an American actor by the name of Robert Brown, and maybe some people remember his name because he was the star of a TV show with a Seattle-based theme that was called Here Come the Brides mm. that was uh, televised in, in the late 1960s into the 70s. Well, anyhow, I made a friendship with him about 15 years ago, became a very close friend, um, and he passed away last night, 96 years old, and uh, he was just a wonderful human being. I was so fortunate to, ha- to get to know him. I kind of made the connection because I wanted to get some tips on communications and things like that. But I found out he was an extremely fascinating man. His uh, father was the butler for Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. Um, and Sarah Roosevelt. And he just had this incredible career. But it was actually marred some because of the McCarthy hearings in the uh, 1950s. He refused to sign the pledge card that he wasn't a communist. Oh. Now, he wasn't, but he said, this is not right. This is not America. And he paid a price for his uh, career, and I think he would have gone much further. But a very high-principled man, and I'm just sorry that uh, I'm not going to be talking to him like mm. every two weeks like I have for the last 15 years. I always oh. look forward sorry to Sorry for your loss. Thank you, and I am going to actually uh, maybe play some of the the interviews I had with him in the ensuing shows. But if you want to visit YouTube, I did have an extensive interview with him. And if you want to, you know, listen to it, you just go to YouTube. All you need to do is input Robert Brown, scroll down to Robert Brown, Paul Casey interview. It lasts for about an hour and over 26,000 people have uh, viewed that interview I had. So Robert Brown, miss you already. Hmm. So we're going to go from that into what uh, we have introduced recently in our experimentations. A comedy segment will be coming up. Um, After that, I'm going to actually talk to him earlier in the week, but uh, Mr. Mark Mason, he's the president and CEO of Home Street Bank. Uh, Fascinating interview with him because he shared his views about being a corporate headquarters in downtown Seattle and having 30 branches banks throughout the county and what he considers about the homelessness problem and also the violence that's going on. I did ask him a question at some point, would you consider moving your headquarters elsewhere? And he talks about that because of what's going on. Mm. Um, Voices in history today, uh, September 20th, 1973. See if anybody can guess this. Uh, This was called the Battle of the Sexes. It was a sporting event that took place in Houston, Texas, and over 50 million viewers. I, I know it. I've you got do it? it in my head. But I'm you not going to spoil it for those who are thinking it through. All right. Okay, Eric. Good I'll ask you. you at the break. All right. Sounds good. I also uh, talked to a Jack Phillips, and he talks about the value of work. And uh, it's so amazing what he actually came up with that. And it's kind of like being able to know what you're doing and express it without, let's say, bragging or trying to be over the top and how important that is that you internalize that and express your value so people know what's going on and what you're doing to an organization. One hit wonder for today. This is a song about a soldier coming back from war and was performed by a British group. 
Most people, including me, thought the song at the time was about the Vietnam War, but it turned out to actually be about the American Civil War, mm. even though a British band recorded it. So that's coming up uh, at the end of the show today. So let's just get with it. If you have any memories about Robert Brown, you want to leave it on a message board or on our recorder, you can call 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And Eric, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship a little bit later as well. Sounds great. Let's get right to the comedy. You know, they have in the Western movies, I saw one the other day again, they have, they call adult Westerns, you know. And this movie I saw was uh, Gunfight at OK Corral. I went to a great B movie. I like to relax. I saw it before, but that's why I went, because a lot of times I want to know what's coming. I don't want any strain, nothing. I just want to sit, you know. So, because the world is changing all around us, and at least that stays steady, you know. I know what's going to come. And in this movie that I saw, Burt Lancaster was playing the part of Wyatt Earp because it was his turn. So, it's interesting about these adult westerns. They're actually afraid that adults won't understand them. So they have a fellow called Frankie Lane sings the movie to you. you know. Everything that happens, he sings. You know, like when Wyatt Earp says, he says, I he wakes up in the morning and he says to the other fellow, he says, deputy, I'm going across the street. He says, I just had orange juice. You know, I have a bad stomach. I'm going to get a little donuts and a light coffee. You know. And he's walking across and you hear him saying, and Wyatt Earp went across the street to get some donuts and light coffee. And it's nice. You lean back and you relax, you know. See? You don't have to listen too close. They sing it every day. So this is very good for the audience, but sometimes it's hell on the actors. Like, in the movie here, Wyatt Earp whispers to a friend, he says, I'm gonna go to, the, I'm gonna go to this Tombstone and I'm gonna get Johnny Ringo. Go to Tombstone and get Johnny Ringo. Okay. He jumps on his horse because he doesn't lie. <laughs> and he starts to ride. And while he's riding, you hear the voice. And Wyatt Earp went to Tombstone to get Johnny Ringo. And Wyatt Earp went to Tombstone to get Johnny Ringo. And he comes into Tombstone, little man is standing, he says, Hiya, Wyatt! You looking for Johnny Ringo? He says, who told you? He said, the whole town knows some fellas singing all over the place. Mark Mason is the director, chairman, and chief executive officer and president of Home Street Bank. He has held that position since January 2010. He is an advisory board member of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics, and he holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from California State Polytechnic University. Mike Flynn, former publisher of the Puget Sound Business Journal and current columnist for Flynn's Harp, suggested that I talk with Mr. Mason about his concerns about escalating crime in downtown Seattle and in the region. You're concerned about the escalating crime in King County and the fact that the King County Prosecutor's Office isn't prosecuting high-level crimes. Is that essentially correct? Well, that, that's correct. And um, I think it's broader than what other people may consider high-level crime. There is a significant backlog in the King County's prosecutor's office of unprosecuted felony cases, some 5,000 cases, it's estimated. At least half of them violent crimes, 500 sexual assaults, and almost 300 murder cases that recently were, as, as of a recent date, were unprosecuted. It seems to me like an average citizen like me looks at things like that, and you just scratch your head and go, this just does not make sense. Why is this happening? I, I think it's due to a combination of conditions. The prosecutor's office has been quoted regarding the backlog as attributing it to the challenges of the pandemic. I think the issues go far beyond that when you consider the policies that the prosecutor's office is operating on. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One, charging standards. 
uh, uh, citizens may not know what that means generally, but it's the level at which the law has determined something, let's say, to be a misdemeanor versus a felony. Common theft by state law, that level is supposed to be $750. However, the prosecutor's office by policy doesn't prosecute felony theft at less than about $2,000. So we're essentially de-felonizing, if you will, significant crimes and making them misdemeanors and shifting the burden of prosecution from the King County Prosecutor's Office, which is responsible for all felony prosecution in the county, in every city in the county, shifting that responsibility back to the various city attorneys. Additionally, there is a focus today in the King County Prosecutor's Office on intervention and diversion programs. And don't get me wrong, I think that those are important, particularly for first-time offenders, so that we can stop the cycle of crime, incarceration, crime, incarceration. However, these diversion programs are being used to recycle criminals back out into society without any penalty and really without justice for the victims. A great example of that is a program that the King County Prosecutor's Office started a couple of months ago called Restorative Community Pathways. And it's a program where many, many felonies committed by minors are not prosecuted, but instead are referred to community agencies to work with these individuals on what they perceive to be the drivers of their criminal behavior, whether that's housing instability, education, drug dependence, and so on. And while that's clearly important for first-time offenders, particularly minors, there's no restriction on repeat offenders, and the list of crimes, felonies, that are available for this program are pretty scary, including bringing a gun to school and and various types of assault. There's a combination of conditions. I was reading your essay on this, and what came to mind for me is that what was wrong with the programs that would say if you did something like this, you were charged with something, whatever that is, if you remain straight and narrow for three, five years or something like that, then we'll take it off your record? Well, that is what is supposed to occur. And the diversion programs historically have been managed by the court. And this is the problem today because there is no case number. There's no court determination as to whether the diversion program is suitable for the individual, whether the individual attended it, completed it, etc. There's no oversight. I think that's really a major problem, not only this and in homelessness. It's so fragmented now. As you point out, third parties are doing this. Are what we doing, are we making a difference? Well, I don't think there's statistics yet on these programs as to whether they're effective or not. Exactly. It seems to me that they should not be rolled out comprehensively until you have that proof. Home Street Bank, your headquarters is in downtown Seattle, and I counted over, I think, 30 branch offices throughout King County. Is that about right? I think a little less than that, but we have a lot of offices here. Your properties, vandalism, has it been something that's been rising over the last couple of years? Vandalism clearly has risen. Of greater concern to us is the rise in armed bank robberies. It has been significant, and not just in King County, but in the West Coast in general. Imagine being a bank teller and having to live with the anxiety of potentially being robbed and then actually going through it. It's tough for our people. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. I actually was at a bank in West Seattle. This is like 10 years ago. And I walked in and a guy came running out with a bag of money and a gun. Hell, I've never forgotten it. I mean, yes, it's terrible. Well, imagine being a branch manager who greets someone at the door, sizes them up as a potential armed robber, and has to choose which of her tellers or his tellers they take this person to, knowing it's a probable robbery. That's a terrible choice. Hmm. I didn't even know that was a choice. I mean, that's incredible. Well, you don't really know that's their intention. Right. right? And we seek to serve all customers equally without bias. I see. And this is the situation you end up with. And you're committing that poor person to 
days, weeks, maybe longer of, of significant anxiety. This is a question, answer or not, but I'm going to ask it anyhow. Would you ever consider leaving downtown Seattle or some of your branches out in communities because of what you're facing every day? <laughs> Paul, we have to. Today, we have um, a little over 300 people assigned to our corporate offices at Sixth and Union downtown. Typically, only around 10% of those people are in the office any given day. We have had to grant significant amounts of pure remote working and hybrid working to compete in the environment. But my people have been away, first because of the pandemic and COVID risk, but today their biggest concern is safety. Safety on the streets, safety in public transportation, and they're literally afraid of coming downtown. And they have a basis for that, let's be honest. If these conditions don't improve, by the end of our lease, which is about seven years from now, and the planning would have to be a couple years before that, we would have to seriously consider moving out of downtown, which would be a shame. This company is 100 years old. It has always been headquartered in downtown Seattle. Wow. Well, that's uh, the reality we're facing. And uh, that would lead me to the next question is, how do you think uh, Mayor Harrell is doing? Well, I give Mayor Harrell an A. Um, One, in part for what he has done to help with homelessness, help cleaning up the public areas, sidewalks and parks, so our citizens can use those areas without concern or anxiety. Two, at getting people moved into temporary housing and getting treatment that they need. Now, it's not perfect, right? And once you move encampments, they pop up someplace else. That's going to take a while. I give them an A on working on the homeless issue. However, on crime, he's having challenges. I mean, look what it took for him to get approval from the city council just to get some more money available in the budget for recruiting uh, police officers. He has his hands full of the city council. Back to the King County Prosecutor's uh, Office, and that is that uh, Dan Satterberg is not running for re-election There are two candidates I see that are. One is Jim Farrell, and he's the Federal Way Mayor. And then there's Elisa Mannion, and she is the Chief of Staff for Satterberg right now. Do you have a favorite candidate? Well, I I, I think it's important that people take a hard look at each of these candidates' priorities. Lisa Mannion, uh, if you look at her priorities on her website— never once mentions how she will work to clean up the backlog of cases. And that's troubling to me. Troubling because we have people who have committed crimes who haven't faced justice. Also critical for, for victims' rights. But her priorities don't address the backlog. Her priorities also, honestly, Paul, don't include anything regarding prosecuting crime. I'll quote this from her website, working to reduce the fear of crime. This includes sharing data to dispel fear mongering and myths and to focus scarce resources on hotspots and chronic perpetrators. I don't know that fear of crime is a problem in our society today that's not warranted. Jim Farrell, on the other hand, if you look at his priorities, they include cleaning up the backlog, fixing diversion programs so they have accountability, not eliminating them, making them effective, and doing the kinds of things you think would be effective in addressing our public safety issues here. I think we should be talking more about the race and the candidates, and it's just not getting much media attention yet. My thanks to Mr. Mark Mason, CEO of Home Street Bank. And welcome back to Voices of Experience right here on Kixie 880 and KKNW AM 1150. I'm Eric Rima in studio with your host, Paul Casey. Uh, we have been talking about all sorts of things, or really you have. You've taken control of this show, and why not? It is your show. <laughs> but a uh, great comedy segment. That was something new you've injected into the program. I think that was kind of fun. 
Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, there's a segment I listened to a whole bunch this morning, and you know, the segment was such that you know you did get those voices <laughs> singing these background to something that's going on. I never thought about how he, the comedian, positioned it and giving away what the main uh, characters were going to do. I, I, it was pretty funny. It and, was really funny, and and uh, I know on today's program it's it's going to be sort of a roller coaster. We're going to do some funny stuff and some serious stuff and some funny stuff and some serious stuff. So stay, stay tuned throughout the entire hour. Um, that interview that you had with uh, – Mr. Mark Mason, president and CEO of Home Street Bank, was certainly enlightening. Uh, you know, we hear about it, the situation from all sides, and it's important to hear from major companies that are in the downtown core. See, Eric, you're right. That's exactly what I think has been lacking in the conversation. You know, maybe you hear, and I've interviewed the executive director of the Downtown Seattle Association, or you talk to city council members or mayoral candidates, whatever the case may be, very important. But here's a guy who's been in this, heads a bank that's been in this city for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. And he's very concerned, and we all are, but he's to the point where we really need to take, uh, not we got to quit talking about this and do something about it. And his um, you know, real concern, among many things, is this, a race for prosecuting attorney of King County coming up. And he laid it out, and anybody wants to comment on it, get your input, 425-653-1166. Just leave your message, what you thought about the interview or what your suggestions would be, too, and we'll get it on the air. Just keep it as uh, brief as you can. Absolutely. And uh, you have a wonderful Voices in History segment here today. Uh, Let's talk about it. Well, uh, yeah, we'll see how far we can go with this. I really enjoy this, and we're getting some good feedback about this segment. I like history, and I know you do, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people do, so this is why we do it. Um, let's start with this one. I think this is kind of interesting. We go back to September of 1959. I believe this was September 19th. Just think, the height of the Cold War, Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev visited the United States to meet with then-President Eisenhower. Prior to the meeting, he stopped off in Los Angeles on September 19th, excuse me, yeah, that's right, it was the 19th, mm-hmm. to visit Hollywood. He was thrilled to meet Shirley MacLaine, Frank Sinatra, and a lot of Hollywood actors and actresses. Later in the day, he said he wanted to visit Disneyland. Because <laughs> of security concerns, though, the U.S. government said, nah, uh, they feared the crowd, so it may pose a safety hazard. So, no, Mr. Premier, you can't visit Disneyland. Well, he exploded and went into a tantrum, just like a five-year-old, <laughs> saying, you're not going to Disneyland today, son. But uh, he did get a Mickey Mouse watch. Uh, I love it. So I made that one up. <laughs> I thought it was true. <laughs> but, you know, with him, it probably would have been. And then I had just one more comment about this. Gorbachev passed away a couple weeks ago. And why I bring this up is the fact that... Um, he was the premier of the Soviet Union, then Russia. When we thought that the big thaw was on and the world was much safer and we were coming together, the wall went down in, in, in uh, Germany and all the good stuff. And I had forgotten this, but the relations between the United States and the Soviet Union, again, Russia technically at the time, were so good that Gorbachev appeared in a TV commercial for Pizza Hut. You know, I don't remember that at all. I vaguely do. <clears throat> it was something I read about. I went, oh, yeah, I do remember it. Vaguely, but I do remember it. Well, you know what we need to do is go to the YouTube. We're gonna, I'm going to YouTube this. All right. And, and uh, watch it. Yeah, verify it if mm-hmm. it's true. But no, I do. I do remember it. It, was, uh, it did happen. Also, on September 20th, 1973, Billie Jean King then age 29, beat Bobby Riggs, aged 55, in the Battle of the Sexes. Bobby Riggs, a self-proclaimed male chauvinist, boasted that women were inferior and couldn't handle the pressure of the game. Well, we found out otherwise, didn't we? The match was witnessed by over 30,000 spectators in the Houston Astrodome and over 50 million TV viewers. And Eric, you said that you watched that. I remember it. I don't remember the whole match. I was pretty young. But I remember a big deal being made of it. My parents uh, making a point to watch it. 
Uh, and so I knew it was important if my mom and dad could find time to sit down on the couch and watch it. Uh, and uh, I just, that's kind of my, my memory, pretty vague, but I, I just, uh, I knew it was important. And uh, I know that they've gone on to do a movie of her life, correct? I th- I believe there was a yes. movie out recently. Oh, as a matter of fact, it was uh, quite recent. I yes. Think it was fairly recent. Anyhow. Fairly recent, yeah. And so it makes me want to go back and watch that. I, I have seen it. It's a good good film, and of course that's on there. Okay, talk about it. I'm sure it would be. Uh, that was pretty amazing. It really, again, one of those things that just captures the world for about ten days, and then maybe five days afterwards before we move on. Uh, September twenty first, nineteen thirty eight. Without warning, the Great New England Hurricane slammed into Long Island and southern New England. More than seven hundred people died. It was devastating to coastal cities and towns and was the most destructive storm to strike New England area in the 20th century. Why are, I don't remember that, but <laughs> my mother did. Wow. She lived on Long Island then. I remember she would talk about that. Oh, wow. She saw boats coming down the streets, and it was pretty terrifying for them. And actually, it was more serious than I thought it really was yeah. when she told me the story. I said, a hurricane. But in, in, the thing is, it came from nowhere. There was no reporting. There was no Doppler. Sure, then. sure. And some people did warn that this was going to happen. There was some famous, uh, you know, weather predictor at the time. And he was, ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not going to hit, you know, Long Island, New England. And it hit exactly where he said it was. The other thing I read about this is that people didn't know about the eye of the storm then. Hurricanes. So the first half of the hurricane came through and then the sun came out and things were calm. And a lot of people went out, oh. back to their business, walking on the shore, and then the backside of it came in and uh, killed a lot more people. And that was uh, something that was only uncovered wow. then. Wow. Well, we're definitely lucky to be living in this day and age where, you, like you say, you know for days it's coming. Now, they don't necessarily know exactly where it's going to hit, but pretty dang close. Yeah, I mean, when I hear people complain about the weathermen, sometimes <laughs> I roll my eyes and go, you know what? 90% of the time they're right, or actually 98%. Yeah. We remember the time yep. they're not. Oh, it's going to be this snowstorm, and we don't get it. Okay, get over it. They're, they're pretty accurate. Get over it. Yeah. Um, and the final one would be on September 24th, 1968. The first episode of 60 Minutes airs and, of course, became a real staple in the media landscape. And I think we can have a conversation about this another time, but it was probably the most influential show for public affairs in history. There's nothing even close to second place on that. And and respected. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, did you watch 60 Minutes last night? Did you see that? You know, that kind of a thing. Right. I, I watch that all the time. I don't mm-hmm. watch it anymore. Quite yeah. frankly, I fell off uh, watching it. And fortunately, I had a good association, still do with the Murrow College, and got to meet Don Hewitt, who was mm. the producer of it. And he was quite a character and so far away ahead of his time. And it was wow. quite, quite uh, interesting to see him. So, Great items today. Love it. So... Where are we at? We're going to keep well, moving on. Well, we're going to talk about actually going into, um, you had an, an interview a while back, quite a while back, with um, Euchre. Bob Euchre. Bob Euchre. Yes. And this, but this has a bit of a twist. Why don't we play it, and then we'll come back <laughs> okay, and talk about good. it. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. You know, I never, uh, I never really thought about anything else. Uh outside of playing baseball you know i did that since i was a kid and then being able to, to play professionally and, and play in the big leagues and then you know to be able to to, to get a job as a broadcaster or a sportscaster uh, but i mean I've, I've done so many other things i mean not not being egotistical or anything but i mean comedy work and stand-up stuff and uh, television series and and uh, there's there's a lot of different i don't know i, I might have been a charter fisherman i, I, love, I love fishing um I, I do a lot of that during the summer in Milwaukee. I fish every day in Milwaukee. I, I think I could have been a charter boat captain and, and enjoyed myself doing that. Or uh, uh, I don't know. I like to fly. Um, I like to fly. I like to fish. Maybe I could have, I don't know, maybe I could have commanded an aircraft carrier or something because uh, I'm a leader. You know, I could lead men. There's about 5,000, 8,000 guys on a carrier. I could fish. I could fly on it. I could do just about anything I wanted, you know, that would, that would be okay with me. Yeah. What was the major ingredient that led to your success? I don't know, I guess um, I wasn't I wasn't afraid to make fun of myself and, and uh, 
And what I did as a career, as, as far as a baseball player, I wasn't the greatest baseball player in the world, but, I, you know, I played in the big leagues, and I, th I think when people people look at me and they say, if, you know, if this guy if this guy played in the big leagues, our kid's got a chance, you know. I mean, if they got a kid that's absolutely nothing, and, and if they look at me and say, our kid's got a chance, I, I did a good job, you know, that's, that's, that's the way I look at it. Has anybody ever come up to you and said that to you? Hey, inspiration because of what you've been able to accomplish. Oh, absolutely, sure. There's a lot of people do that. I mean, there's a lot of people do that with with other people. I'm sure too. Other players, uh, other people in different walks of life. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, baseball is not the end of the world, and and um, it's you know it's a game. It's it's a game today. Of course, it's played for a lot of money in difference to when I played, but it's still a game and it's something that can be enjoyed you know it's it's not uh, life and death the end of the world if you don't make it it's not the end of the world there's always something else to do and and i found something else to do final question what do you think major league baseball will be like in twenty years from now um, I'm, I'm i'm sure it's going to be the same as it is right now I, baseball had not changed uh, players changed, salaries change uh... personnel changes but uh... baseball doesn't change nothing's going to change with baseball it'll, it'll, i hope the dh is gone by then but uh... I've never been a fan of the DH. Other than that, baseball is, baseball is the same as it's always been. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, the only serious interview that Bob <laughs> Buchert ever gave in his life was with me. I could not get him to laugh. And a friend of mine was with me, Mike Sweeney, and we were down in uh, spring training, and he was doing announcing for the Milwaukee Brewers then, and he still is. And uh, I peeked in the door, and... My first question I had, do you all, why do you always have to be on? Is that really pressure? Be funny all the time. So that mm -hmm. was going to be my first question to him. I opened up the door, looked in, uh, Mr. Euchre, my name is Paul Casey from Seattle. And you know, I do goes, what are you doing here? And I'm going, well, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get a few comments from you. All right, I only got a few minutes, you know. And like, well, this started well. My friend had a camera. We walked up to him and we said, uh, you know, uh, and they go, what are you doing with that camera? No pictures. So I scratched the first question, <laughs> like having to be funny and yeah, on all yeah. the time, you yeah, know, and just, just having to do that. Apparently said, not. <laughs> and I went to my throwback, and it's like, what would you do if it wasn't baseball? And uh, then he got into that. But it was a very serious dialogue. He gave me some good information, but I thought it was so funny. And I think he was just kind of screwing with me when he came to the point. He was thinking of things to say, fishing and my boating and Oh, I could lead an aircraft carrier, you know? <laughs> what the heck, you know? It kept getting bigger. Yeah. He started with a charter boat, ended up on a aircraft carrier, commanding right. 5,000 people. I watched him on YouTube the other night, and it was hilarious. I was laughing so hard, and I'm going again, <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened to me? Well, you had one of those rare moments. I call it the sad banjo. Okay. There is no sad, you know, it's really hard to sing or or play a sad song with a banjo, but you found a way. <laughs> I did. I did. What a great interview. That was what fun. a cool memory. So anyhow. Well, we have a more serious one coming up and that would be with uh, Mr. Phillips. It's going to be an interesting interview, I think, about uh, talking about what you can do to really prop yourself up in your organization. Dr. Jack J. Phillips, Ph.D., He's an award-winning thought leader in the field of talent development. He helps individuals show their value of their work in all types of businesses and other organizations. He has taught over 50,000 professionals and managers in over 70 countries. I guess he's just trying to help you, if you're working for a business or any organization, put your best foot forward so your contributions will be recognized. You know, I think about sports. When players come to camp, they try to showcase their talents so they can make the team. Why this book? Show the value of what you do. What was the inspiration for writing this book? Well, so many people need this. Our books that we've written to this point are very specialized, like measuring the ROI in marketing or project management ROI, something like that. And that gets us to audience. When you put those together, that's a pretty broad audience, but it's still a small drop in the bucket here. So, so many people need it. We wanted a book that's easy to read, doesn't have ROI in the title, which often scares people. It has a lot of stories. So it's a thin book. It's a 150 pages, 60% of stories from individuals who abuse this process and the, showing what they did and how it helped them. And so it's trying to get it to a much broader audience. Roughly, what is you, are you trying to get across in terms of showing your value? Well, whatever you do, your work or in your projects or your 
programs, you implement, your systems, initiatives, whatever you're doing, there's a levels of success that come through that process. And so we're trying to show you those different levels of success and how do you manage toward those to make sure you deliver different levels of success to whatever level you need to, to go to. These days, you really need to show the impact. Now, those levels are how people react to what you do. Second is what they're learning from you. And third is what are they doing because of you. And fourth is the impact that you're having. And five is, is it worth the journey for you and for your people involved in the project while working with you? So those are the five levels. We call those reaction, learning, application, impact, so when you are trying to, uh, as yourself, trying to make that evaluation, how can you do that objectively? When you're collecting data, the data is coming from others or coming from the systems or records themselves. So when someone is um, providing reaction, how are they reacting to our project? That's collected uh, in a very non-threatening, non-biased way, and, and it's their data, not yours. Now, you're trying to understand what your success, so you're not going to try to bias that yourself necessarily. You might have someone else collect it for you if you want to. For the learning data, it's, it's several ways you can capture that, but it's often self-assessment from the people involved. Application may be something that you see in the system, something they're actually doing now. Application is action. They're doing something. So it's something that you can visibly see or someone can see. An impact is user records in this system. It, it's a productivity, maybe it's quality, it's time, it's uh, accidents, incidents, uh, all those kind of things that are already measures somewhere in the system. And then, of course, to get to ROIs, you have to do some some analysis. You, you convert those impacts to money compared to the cost of, the, of what, the, what the project is costing to get you the ROI. Can you give us an example of, let's say, someone who you're aware of, maybe you're, it's yourself or your wife, who put this into practice and what was the outcome? I want to give you, yes, the opening story in the book. And it's a chaplain, if you can, can imagine. So a chaplain has some pressure to show the hospital system the value of what the chaplain does. In fact, he managed a group of chaplains, including himself. And the hospital says, you know, we can't continue to support support you and fund you necessarily if you don't, if you cannot show the value delivered right in, in terms of monetary value. So we, we taught this person this process. And so he's now uh, looking at his work in terms of what can he do, what can he measure. And one of the measures he can influence is the length of stay in the hospital. So he actually... Um, tried something a little different um, using chaplains in an area where they haven't used chaplains. And so they looked at that was what was the reaction to having a chaplain there? What are they learning from the chaplain? What is it everyone is doing there differently now because of the chaplain? And the impact is actually the length of stay reduced for that individual. And that the hospital had a monetary value for that. They can save so much money when we can reduce the length of stay. They compared that to the cost of the, of the chaplain, having a chaplain there, and that presented that data to the hospital administrator, and funding the funding issue went away. He says, oh, well, these things we see clearly. Obviously, he did more of those kinds of studies, but it's showing the value of what you're doing all the way to ROI if you need to go there. Impact is usually where most people are okay with. Show me the impact of what you do. That's a very key word, impact. That's a great example. Do you have another one? Uh, certainly. So we have a person who was interested in continuing to work at home. During the pandemic, she was working at home, and the company was saying, I think it's time to come back to work. And she says, well, I think I'm getting more done here. I'd like to show you the success of having me work at home. So she did some analysis about first how she is reacting to this and satisfied with it. Obviously, it's very helpful to her and how she's learned to work at home and stay connected, stay in collaboration with the team. And her productivity has gone up. That's actually something they could see. But she says, my retention is still 
in place because I'm staying with you because you let me work at home. I may not stay with you if you force me to come back to work. She looked at her, the value of her productivity, looked at the cost of the turnover, and looked at whatever cost they had, which is very minimal, of having her work at home and made the case and they let her stay in a remote working environment because she did some analysis that takes it beyond just your perception. Having data makes a difference. Hmm. Very interesting. I'm thinking about if you should just do this from time to time. She seemed to be in a situation, again, we want you back at the office. She demonstrated that she could actually get more accomplished at home and perhaps that people who are working or whatever status they're at should always be thinking about this even before someone approaches them to ask them what the value of what you're bringing to the company, that you have that in your head, that you'll be ready to bring that information forward if you must. Yes, that's a key point there. You see, if you look at what's the value of an employee working, one is their attitude, their perception of what they bring. You know, that's our reaction. And another is the capability we bring. That's what we know. So that's our learning that's prepared us for the job. And level three is what am I doing? Am I following through? Am I checking this? I'm doing this. I'm following up. I'm, that's my actions and tasks and behaviors. And then the impact is what's so critical. Every person in their work has output, quality, cost, and time. Output's what you're doing, and quality is the quality is mistakes and errors and waste that we may have. Time is how long it takes you, and the cost is what it's costing the company. So if you can think of your work that way, then you want to focus on impact. Impact is what you're actually delivering with hard data, essentially. Very good. Anything uh, before we go? I should add that uh, this is something that can really help you, a person with a career. It can help them get funding for projects and programs, continue funding, and get support that they need improves their own satisfaction. So it's a lot of benefits to the person. So when you've got the data, you want to improve always to make it better. Just Google Dr. Jack J. Phillips, and you will find out more about him and his latest book, Show the Value of What You Do. He's also authored a number of other books on these subjects and others about how it relates to business and organizational behavior. Again, just Google Dr. Jack J. Phillips. We are live and on the air, and here we go with this segment. Uh, you know, that was a, I, I enjoyed listening to that because I believe wholeheartedly in it, Paul, where a lot of times you need to step back and think, okay, if you're an employee um, or if you're in a business and you have vendors and things like that, you, you've got to constantly think about your value to them, what you bring to the table, and and be proud of it and, and you know, tout out what your skills are and why you're why it's so important they have you on the team but you also have a little bit of that humility where you need to realize that you're part of a team here and your skills your efforts are really fed into a larger goal right of course absolutely and uh but i think also too it does help you internalize that yourself and that does a great deal Mm -hmm. of value Mm -hmm. to yourself if you go to work wherever it may be Mm mm-hmm or whether you're doing it at home or whether you're doing it in an office setting, to know the value of what you're bringing to the table makes you feel better about yourself, you know, I would think, rather than just every day trudging to work, you know, what am I doing here? And stopping at Starbucks going, <laughs> what am I doing in life? Wait a minute, you've been following me around? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I have some issues, Eric. We'll talk about that we'll another time. Well, another person with issues, he, he's really struggling for money, is, is Mark Cuban. Absolutely. And I feel like I need to send them some money, help them get through the next paycheck period. But uh, you have an interesting take on uh, something that he made a statement about this week. And it's it's actually, I think he got it from you. I've No doubt in my mind. He was probably coming through <laughs> Seattle, and I'm going to talk to him about that. Um, you know, this is one time that I said something early on that I go, wow, someone else agrees. And it's someone like Mark Cuban um, who I looked up is worth four six billion dollars. Wow, just a little bit more than I have in my bank account. <laughs> but I said something early on when I was writing about uh, my book on self-employment. Is self-employment for you? And I really concentrated on some of the myths that I felt going into business for myself were like, for example, you know, going into business for yourself, you're a huge risk taker. 
That's, mm-hmm. to me, a stereotype that really is not true. We look at some people I talk to and myself, the huge risk is working for someone else that can come in and say, out of here. So that drives. And then if you keep your costs low, it's not that big of um, risk at all. Uh, but the one that you were mentioning is the eighth myth that I have, and that is follow your passion and the money will follow. And I felt over the years, and I wrote about it and said that, you know, and I quote here, 80% of small businesses fail. One of the major reasons why the failure rate is so astonishingly high, astonishingly high, is that too many people buy into the long-held myth, if you follow your passion, the money will follow. Now, an example, if I can do this real quickly, because I know we're almost out of time. I saw this woman interviewed on the Today Show. She was taking maternity leave, and she was an attorney, and she was sitting around trying to find stencils for her baby room. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find any that were inexpensive. She started a company, and she ended up doing extremely well making and selling these stencils cheaply cheaply and cost-effectively. And so she ditched her job at the law firm because she was doing so well. I remember the end of the interview because someone said, wow, she followed her passion and the money followed. It just, they had to say that. Right. And it was like, no, <laughs> she did the exact opposite. She saw a problem. She saw a niche. She saw something that wasn't being met. She didn't grow up saying, I want to make baby stencils in my room. <laughs> no, she was looking around. She saw an opening and she went and did it. Interesting. That's what the thing is and why I'm so you know, uh, passionate about saying uh, it's not about your passion. Um, it's about really finding that niche and solving a problem. And Mike, Mark Cuban just uh, said something along the lines that he said, it's the worst advice that he's ever heard given about anything about going into business. So that's why we brought up Mark Cuban. That's that's wild. Um, and it makes sense when you look at it that way. You know, you always hear about those people. I'm going to I'm going to leave my work and I'm going to write the great American novel. And what do they get a page or two? And then they're back to work because that was a passion of theirs to write that novel. But they need money as well. And 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 it's not necessarily a business. So maybe have those things be separate. Absolutely. Take it from me. I've written two books. And I would be sleeping on the streets now if I thought I was going to make a lot of money from it. I had a lot of satisfaction doing it. I made a few bucks on it, but nothing to sustain myself because I'm not an author. You know, I just wrote a couple books and it's something if you want to be an author, you're, you're doing like Stuart Woods, late Stuart Woods or Patterson. You're just doing this every three months or so. Well, you know, unfortunately, we've come to the close, or we're definitely toward the close of this edition of Voices of Experience. Um, Paul, great show. Uh, Where do you want to take us in the couple of minutes that we have left before we go to the one-hit wonder? Well, I just wanted to uh, mention that uh, we have a couple very interesting guests coming up in the next couple weeks. And uh, next week, Randy Johnson. You set it up and uh, had a discussion with him and kind of fun uh, talking to him. So we're going to have him on next week's show, and then October 5th, another one that you set up, Johnny Mathis, the great Johnny Mathis. I'm looking so forward to that one. So a Hall of Famer and an award-winning artist. Amazing. Yeah. Back-to-back. Yeah, that's right. So uh, if you heard anything today you would like to comment on, again, please call our Voices of Experience hotline, 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. Quote of the week. Speak when you're angry, and it will be the best, and it will be one of the best speeches in your life that you will forever regret. (laughs) Groucho Marx. That's true. He always had a great way of saying things, didn't he? That's it. Well, we've got a one hit wonder that's coming up. People love that segment. So uh, get ready, turn up your radio, and get ready to listen to a great song right here on Voices of Experience. Again, heard on Kixie, 880 AM, and KKNW AM 1150, Wednesdays at 3 o'clock, and then, of course, Sundays at 11 AM. And don't forget, you can listen to the podcast where and when you want. Have a great week, everybody. This week's One Hit Wonder was first offered to the British band the Tremolos, but they turned it down. The producer, Mike Smith, 
took the vocals off the tremolos recording of this song and added Jeff Christie's. It became an international hit, number one in England and rose to number 23 in the United States. Now, the word river is included in the title of the recording. Most people listening to the song, like me, thought it was about a soldier returning from the Vietnam War, when in fact it was about a soldier returning home at the end of the American Civil War. The release date, April 23rd, 1970. Yellow River by Christie. to live. Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at kw.com.